he told me that I had a poor prognostic form or a devastating form of rheumatoid arthritis. He said that the disease was incurable, that I will be on medications for the rest of my life. He painted a very grim picture. The waiting room was grim. It was hard to walk through the waiting room where everybody's in wheelchairs and canes and such a difficult moment. And hearing all those things, I remember when I asked, well, what if I try other things? He said, well, you can try anything, but nothing's going to work. And this is the future. This is what you have to get used to. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. Imagine, if you will, that you are trapped on the floor. And your body is in excruciating pain. You're unable to move. Now imagine that this is happening to you and you're a young doctor, a cardiologist even, and you have young children at home. You're trying to do it all. And now everything that you have been juggling has fallen to the ground. Worry then begins to creep in. What does the future look like? What is going on? For Dr. Monica Agarwal, that was reality. A pain that began as a simple stiff shoulder quickly spread throughout her body, attacking joint after joint after joint. And even before she lay immobile on the floor that morning, just walking felt like sharp shards of glass were cutting into her feet. You see, Dr. Agarwal had become one of the more than 54 million Americans living with arthritis. Hers? A crippling form of rheumatoid arthritis. And so today, you will go on a journey with Dr. Agarwal She and I had a chance to talk about that fateful day and what led up to it and how this journey that started as one of simple survival through traditional means quickly turned into a search for better answers. Answers that would afford her a higher quality of life and answers that would ultimately culminate in a complete journey back to health. That's a heck of a thing, given her own doctor's grim prognosis. You heard what Dr. Agarwal said during the intro. He said, get used to it. But how could anyone get used to that type of pain? And therein lies her journey. So the question she eventually came to ask herself... Could it be that the food she was eating was to blame for this crippling pain? Could her diet be driving her arthritis? What she discovered left little doubt as to the answers. 
So this is a tale of resiliency and persistence and how one woman's journey is now helping to lead others to a healthier place and improve their quality of life and extinguish the flames that have set their body on fire. My next guest is a highly respected cardiologist and a phenomenal author, and today she is also an inspiration like no other. Overcoming unbearable pain, a pain that has transformed her life and the way she views medicine. With that, we welcome Dr. Monica Agarwal to the exam room live. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much, Chuck, for having me. It's great to see you again. When you and I were talking about your book, uh, Body on Fire, I was blown away. I, I honestly, at that point, did not yet realize that you had been through the thick of it yourself um, as an RA sufferer. So I'm really glad that you're able to almost check that that doctor portion of, of yourself today. And I just, I want to focus more on your story as the patient, if that's okay with you. Sure. Um. Your road to becoming a doctor, let's start with this, has not always been easy. You know, some people do it a little bit more quickly. It took you, I believe, 10 years to get through all of your training. And then uh, you have also written eloquently about the challenges that came from just being a woman in medicine as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about that decade-long journey just to get uh, into where it is that you are? Yeah, so um, becoming a cardiologist is not a easy process. So it started when you're 18 years old and you have this con. Actually, interestingly, I was a religion major in college. My parents wanted me to be a doctor, Indian parents, always you have to be a doctor or engineer. It's sort of the thing. Um, and so my parents wanted me to be a doctor. So I, of course, naturally being American born, uh, fought that and had my own independent ideas. And I did economics for a while. I did a little this for a little while, a little that for a while. I thought I was going to be a philosophy major, ultimately uh, majored in religious studies, uh, interestingly, with a focus in Buddhism. Um, but my dad said that he would not pay for my college if I didn't um, finish. He wouldn't pay for my college unless I did some sort of science um, component. So I got a minor in biology. So that's how I got around it. Um, and then when I finished, um, when I got through, uh, when I was in the middle of college, at the end of college, I started meeting some influential mentors of my sisters. My sister was in, already in medical school and really made me see sort of that, yeah, I actually think that. Uh, being a doctor would be pretty awesome. And I had a specific uh, mentor in in college named Richard Edlick, who was a plastic surgeon um, who developed uh, debilitating multiple sclerosis and was in a wheelchair. Um, and he took me under his wing and I became, I worked with him a lot. And he really showed me that there's such a connection between sort of actually between religion and medicine, interestingly. So when I went into medical school, um, you go through four years of medical school. Then after you graduate medical school, you do three years of internal medicine. Um, and then after that, you have to do three more years of cardiology. So by the time you finish your training, you're older. Um, you really, it takes um, from the time you're 18 
uh, effectively medical school uh, residency. So that's already, you know, 11 years or so uh, of training. And many of us go on further to get further subspecialty in prevention or interventional cardiology. So it can end up being 10 to 12 years. So by the time you finish all your training, you, um, you are realizing that you are at the time where you want to have kids and your clock is ticking, so to speak. Um, and there, that's a tricky thing. And so some people say, well, why don't you have um, kids while you're in training? Um, but cardiology in general and subspecialty medicine is not a women's game. Uh, it is a man's um, game and it's not um, well looked upon if you get pregnant in your program. Now, people will say outwardly, yes, it's okay. And nobody would say anything. Well, nobody does still say anything, but it's, it's always there. It's always in the room that this person took off three months for pregnancy. And so for whatever reasons, I felt I couldn't have a child while I was in residency or in my fellowship training because somebody has to cover you all the time. Somebody has to cover you when you're not um, when you're not working. And so it's already such an intense time where you're taking so much call. And then if some one person is not there, then your call is just doubled. And, and it's, it's really difficult for those other people. Um, and it creates a lot of malintent, unfortunately. So uh, being a woman in medicine is very challenging. I think it's interesting about 50% of people, women, uh, metal, sorry, 50% of medical school actually is women right now. Uh, and in pediatrics, you're going to see actually more women than you're going to see men. And in internal medicine, I think it's about 50-50. But once you go into subspecialty like cardiology, only about 10 to 12% of your of the group of cardiologists is going to be a female and there's so few female faculty um, that it's a, it's a, it's a real problem. And, and ironically uh, you know, physicians and, and female physicians are considered to be better doctors because we tend to be more emotional, um, more in tune to sort of the other factors uh, take in terms of taking care of patients yet somehow only 10 to 12% of cardiologists are women. So that's really a 10th. So, you know, there was a lot of pressure um, to go through. Um, and I think that once I finished training, I definitely was like, oh, my God, I got to have kids. So uh, that's what I did. Yeah. Uh, and, and you uh, you you had them in quick succession, one, two and three, just back to back to back. Were you able at all to, I mean, continue in, in medicine? Like, how did you balance the schedule? I mean, three kids for anybody is is a lot and then to be in medicine as well i mean i just can't even imagine that you were getting more than two or three hours of sleep a night at best yeah so it was a crazy life so what i maybe didn't haven't told you or didn't write in the book is that so when i first decided that i wanted to have kids i decided to get pregnant in the end of my third year of training so this is now six now my 10th year of training after you you decide okay like if i plan it just right because in your mind women, we all do this. And this is something that I try when I mentor younger women, I tell you, you know, it's completely unpredictable. So when I, you think you can plan out pregnancies and deliveries and everything's going to go exactly the way you want it, but it just, it's so hard to, it's so far from the truth. So when I was in my last year of training, I decided to get pregnant. Um, so because I finished, if I, I, the way I worked it out in my head is that I would deliver the kid right when I finished my training and I wouldn't affect anybody. Um, but I actually uh, had three miscarriages miscarriages in a row. Um, so I, one of my first miscarriage actually was pretty far along. Um, and it was devastating. 
Um, and then um, continued to have another and another miscarriage. I had a OBGYN and this is when I started um, realizing, God, how much compassion is needed in medicine. I remember telling the OB, you know, crying with the, with the OBGYN saying, I said, when, when can I start trying to have another baby? And he said, well, you can go, you can try again as long as you, whenever you're ready to lose the baby again. Uh, and I thought that that was the most horrifying thing I've ever heard for somebody to say is that you are ready to have another baby when you're ready to lose the baby. Um, and so that because the miscarriage rate is so high at 20%, he was correct. But the way he said it was just horrifying. So I had three miscarriages um, and um, which was very complicating. They could never figure out why I had so many miscarriages. And then when I got pregnant the fourth time, the baby took and it stayed and that's my boy. Um, and so now you can imagine, so I did all that training then I had multiple miscarriages. And so by the time I really started having kids, I was really feeling the, the, the brunt, the time. So, uh, you know, I'll tell you when I had my first kid, I was on the, I was on the moon, you know, it was amazing to have a kid, to be able to appreciate the fact that I, after so much trying to have this child, he there was nothing that was going to make it un, not uh, not a pleasant experience for me. No matter the the amount I tore in my pregnancy, the the two and a half hour pushing, the um, the post uh, when he was de he delivered when he turned yellow, the nursing, the pain. I mean, there were so many things, but I was still just so so happy to have um, this little guy, um, and it was wonderful. So um, I, because of that time clock that we keep talking about, I decided to have multiple children uh, quickly. Uh, you just didn't know, because I knew that having had all those miscarriages, I knew that I, I may not have that much time. What if I miscarry again? There could be a huge gap in between the kids. But interestingly, as soon as we started trying, we became pregnant again. And so I always joke with my friends that the or my patients even will say, oh, I knew, I remember you when you were pregnant. I'll say, oh, you know, there was a six-year period. I was either pregnant or, or nursing. So I was big in the tummy or big in the breast. Whatever you, uh, one of those times, I was always, <laughs> it was always one or the other. Um, but that's how it was. Like I literally was pregnant and nurse or nursing for six years because as soon as I delivered and we were sort of emotionally ready, like, okay, we want to start having, start trying again, I would get pregnant immediately. It was like my body finally figured it out and we just, started having kids. So yes, I had three kids under four. Um, I had a, a three and a half year old, a two year old and a newborn. Uh, yes, life was crazy. I was working full time. I only took six weeks off in between maybe eight weeks off in between each pregnancy because that's what I felt I had to do as a physician. So people weren't covering me. Um, and I think that's probably a little bit on me or a lot of us as physicians, as women, female physicians, we don't want to have other people um, taking care of our responsibilities, we're, we're taught to sort of chin up. Um, and so I took six or eight weeks off and then went back to work. So I was covering call and working full time. And so there, I was described that, you know, somebody I'd be on the phone with somebody having a heart attack in the emergency room and having to guide the ER team on what I wanted to be done. And there would be a baby on my breast, you know, that would be cooing in the background. So that, that was my life. And so there were, it was a crazy time where I was 
uh, pureeing baby food. I was pumping, nursing, sleeping, yeah, maybe three, four hours a night. If I was lucky, five. I was trying to run because I had to get fit again and recover from my baby weight each time. And it was a crazy, crazy life. And, and I mean, such a, a stressful schedule not a whole heck of a lot of time. Were you then falling prey to the standard American diet, which is largely grab and go a lot of fast food, a lot of heavily processed food? What, what was it that you were eating really at that time? So at the time I would say that I was, uh, I was vegetarian uh, at the time, but I was sort of a bad vegetarian agree um, that I was eating a lot of like cheese sticks. Uh, I remember cheese sticks were a big go-to for me. Um, I would eat a lot of dairy. Uh, dairy was a big thing for me. So I would have a lot of cheese, uh, cheese sticks were regular. I would try to have uh, fruits and stuff and I wasn't a big processed food eater, but, uh, enough different, um, and just sort of more consumption than actually using, um, for sure. Um, and you know, I, I wasn't somebody who picked up chips necessarily, but I would, uh, I would be known to microwave food that I'd prepared, before, or I'd get an instant meal um, for the family uh, if needed, or uh, and maybe not as many fruits and vegetables because you just can't get to the grocery store. Um, and so that was sort of the way I ate. And and often, sadly, I didn't eat. I there were hours, you know, I would spend eight hours or ten hours a day not eating. I remember my urine would be crystallized because I just hadn't eaten, and I was nursing, which dehydrates you too. And then I'd be constipated because. I was totally dehydrated. I wasn't eating super well. Uh, and nursing makes you wicked constipated. Nobody talks about that. But so all of those things, plus I was working eight to 10 to 12 hours a day uh, as I was managing these three kids. So life was absolutely crazy. And I don't look at that time period of my life, uh, the way I handled it with great pr pride um, because I was so, um, it was crazy. Let's talk about the toll then it began to take on you physically. Um, you've written that uh, you started to experience uh, pain and it increased exponentially uh, rather quickly. What was the first thing that you noticed and how did it progress? So um, when the when the, yeah, the third was uh, four, four and a half months old around there, um, I was I started developing joint pain. Uh, and all, it was out of the blue. I mean, I'm a, I'm a runner. I've, I was a marathoner. Um, and, um, I started with a, with my finger. I always start rubbing my finger because I always remember that finger being the, the source of pain first. And it was got red hot and swollen. And I remember thinking how odd it was that the finger was all, uh, uncomfortable. Um, and I thought, oh, I must've hit it somewhere. Um, and then I ignored it and let it go away. And then it was my shoulder. Um, and my shoulder started getting hot and I couldn't lift it up. Um, and that caused a lot of pain and then that went away. And then it was another finger. Um, and then it was my knees, uh, and then it was my feet and, you know, the feet, I remember my feet in particular, because every time I would step, I would feel like there was glass or cutting through my feet. In fact, uh, my husband remembers how I used to change my shoes. I kept buying new shoes because I thought there was something wrong with the shoes. That's why I couldn't step down so easily. Um, I would go to the hospital, but somebody who usually runs up the stairs, I would try to find elevators on the other sides of the hospital where people couldn't see me taking the elevator um, because I couldn't climb the steps with any grace. Um, I remember um, 
that I was extremely tired. And I used to blame that on um, just having three kids and being having a full-time job. Um, but the joints just continued to get uh, worse and worse. I remember that I couldn't do the fine motor skills of of just putting my fingers together. In fact, the snaps on baby's clothes, they used to drive me crazy. And I remember, I remember sitting on at two in the morning, clipping my, the baby's clothes, thinking I'm going to write a letter to, I don't know, Carter's or Gap, Baby Gap or wherever the clothes were from and say that they shouldn't make clothes with snaps because that's too hard for people to do to make that snapping motion because I couldn't do it. Um, because clearly the clothes were the problem and not me. Um, and so that's how things went for months. And then I, for weeks, sorry, it just went so quickly. And I remember there was one day that everything sort of came to a head. Uh, and that day, um, still to me is a painful one to talk about. It was the day that I remember it was like four in the morning, the alarm had gone off for me to get up. And so for me, the ritual of the morning is complex or was complex. I have to first wake up, take the dogs out. Um, so I would hobble down the stairs and take the dogs out. Then I would have to start making meals. So I have two kids that had to go to daycare. And then I had the baby that needed to go, uh, needed to be nursed. Um, and then I had to make my lunch. Uh, the dogs had to be fed. So all of this stuff. And then I had to be ready to go to work because I started clinic at eight o'clock. So all of this stuff between four and, um, you know, leaving by seven or se seven o'clock or um, in order to get everybody where they needed to get. So I remember that day um, because I went down the stairs hobbling, let the dogs out and was getting started on my morning and um, the baby started crying. And if the baby starts crying and the baby's room was right near the two-year-old and the four-year-old's room. So I was worried that the other kids would wake up. And so I was like, oh my God, you know, and so I started running towards the stairs to, to go pick up the baby. Uh, but I couldn't get up the stairs that day. Um, I, uh, had to crawl up the stairs that day, um, because I, I just couldn't make it up. And, um, my husband, he found me, um, at the bottom of the crib crying, um, and the baby screaming, uh, because I actually couldn't get the baby out of the crib. Uh, I couldn't get up to her crib and do the reaching motion so that I could pick her up. Um, so that's where he found me. Um, and it was at that point when he lifted up the baby and put him in my, put her in my arms so I could nurse her that I realized that I, I was really in trouble. Something was, something very bad was happening to me. Mm. And how old were you at this point? If you don't mind my asking. So I was probably 37, 36, 36 so still, you know, relatively young. And for somebody that age, even though you had been pushing yourself to the max between your career and your family to be having something this severe occurring to your body must have, I mean, frankly, just scared the bejesus out of you. It did, you know, I, um, but you know, I, you know, what I think that shocked me most is how quickly everything DS, you know, just escalated. I, I went from being such an active runner to, to like literally not being able to climb the stairs. I mean, can you imagine the humility of just sitting there on the ground? My breasts were leaking because the baby's crying and I could not get her out of the crib. It was, it was, uh, it was an incredible moment and um, one that I don't remember and think of fondly. And so I did what any good physician does. I started treating myself 
um, for Lyme disease because mm-hmm. I decided that I had migratory joint pain. I lived in a wooded area. I must have have Lyme disease. So I started myself on antibiotics, uh, thinking I'm going to get better within a week or two. And I just continued to get worse and worse. Uh, I had a friend of mine draw some blood for me and my blood work was completely abnormal. Uh, all my inflammatory markers were elevated um, and my autoimmune factors were abnormal. My rheumatoid factor was, if the normal is, I don't remember offhand, zero to 10 or something. Mine was greater than 50. So uh, she checked in something called an anti-CCP antibody, which is um, progn- shows prognosis in rheumatoid arthritis. So it shows how sort of debilitating your illness will be. And mine, um, I think it's supposed, I can't remember the numbers offhand. It's supposed to be less than, you know, zero to 10 or something like that, let's just say. And mine was greater than um, 250. So uh, it was at that point that I said that, okay, I'm going to go see a rheumatologist. Um, So I went to the best rheumatologist in town. I was in Maryland at the time and I went to Hopkins and I saw a rheumatologist there and um, he told me that I had a poor uh, prognostic form or a devastating form of rheumatoid arthritis. He said that uh, the, the disease was incurable and that I needed to get used to the idea that I have an illness and that this is my future, that I will be on medications for the rest of my life. Um, and if I got on medications now, um, within a week, um, then I had the best shot of doing okay. Um, he painted a very grim picture. The waiting room was grim. It was hard to walk through the waiting room where everybody's in wheelchairs and canes and, um, sort of such a, such a difficult moment. Um, hearing all those things, I remember when I asked, well, what if I try other things? He said, well, you can try anything, but nothing's going to work. Um, and, um, this is the future. This is what you have to get used to. Mm -hmm. Boy, I can't even imagine what would be running through your head at that point. Um, Still relatively uh, early on in your medical career, a cardiologist, obviously this is going to greatly impact that. But then I think the greater toll would be, how are you going to raise your kids? You know, if, if things are as dire as the doctor is saying, how in the world are you going to be effective as a mother? Talk about the emotions that came with all of that and, and how you were you know, just wrestling with it. I think that this is a topic certainly that we, um, we don't talk enough about. And admittedly, I have trouble myself talking about, you know, I think, um, I think women are superheroes and I really think that we do so much that is ridiculous and crazy and we're not good about asking for help. And, uh, I, you know, I wanted to be perfect at everything. Um, I wanted to be a great doctor, but more importantly, I wanted to be a great mom. Like I wanted to do, I remember there were times at midnight, I'd be making cupcakes for the kids to go to school so they could take them for school. I mean, they were two years old and four years old, but I felt I had to make the cupcakes for the birthday. So I would be doing the icing at night. 
And then I would um, not even be there in the morning for them to see the joy of seeing the cupcakes in the morning. And I was pureeing baby food and pumping all the time and just so they had enough milk. And so you feel like you have to do all these things, but you want to do it. You know, I had all those miscarriages and I, I really wanted to be this great mom. Like I wanted to just enjoy that time. And so when you get an illness diagnosis and you're told that you, um, you're not sure how things are going to go. You're not sure how your practice cardiology is. And the fact that I couldn't even snap or climb the stairs you, and you see all those wheelchairs in the, in the, in the waiting room, it, it puts you in a really dark place. I remember they, I was getting some sort of scan done and I remember I was in a wheelchair. They put you in a wheelchair and I was in, they were in a, it was a huge wheelchair and I was this tiny person. I remember how, how you feel so small and you know, that, you know, it's that classic doctor becoming the patient. You really start understanding what it's like. Like when you're the doctor, you tell patients, I used to tell patients, oh, the risk is one in a thousand. It's never going to happen. But when you're the patient, you start realizing that you are thinking you could be that one in a thousand. And so you start thinking about things totally differently when all of a sudden the side effect profiles are being said, because that, because I was told the medicines I was going to start won't cause any problems. Most people tolerate them just fine. You, it's one in a thousand that you could have liver failure, but I would dream at night that I was going to be the one to have liver failure and not wake up in the morning. And what would my kids do? Who was going to take care of them? And don't get me wrong. I have an amazing husband who does so much and is so helpful but to have not have a four month old who I'm nursing, then not have their mom, you know? And so this is where you think, and maybe it's not totally logical and I'm an extremely logical person, but when you get an illness or when something happens to you, logic so much of the time goes out the window and emotion takes over uh, for even for, for everyone, I think. And I think it's that emotional um, that's fear. I was so scared. I was so nervous. My husband and I would just hold hands and he would just squeeze my hand and say, it's going to be okay. We're going to get through this. And, you know, and some people would say, well, gosh, it was just rheumatoid arthritis. Like it wasn't that bad. But to me, because of how much I'd fallen from where I was and how much they, I felt like I was going to be in a wheelchair, I'd wake up dreaming that I would be in a wheelchair in a week. Um, and, that that is hard to overcome. And you were put on uh, medication there, but I understand that there were some side effects. So you, you did see some improvement, but there was a lot that came with that as well. What was the treatment plan you were given and what were those side effects you were experiencing? So I, um, the standard of care for, um, for rheumatoid arthritis is to be started on steroids, usually initially, um, to deal with the acute inflammation. So steroids cause you to be puffy, they make you gain weight. And people always say like, how do what can't you just control your appetite? Well, you just feel this munchy feeling all the time, you get nauseous um, from the steroids as well, which makes you want to eat breads and refined carbohydrates. Uh, and then you're started on disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. They're called DMARDs um, for short. And those are medications like methotrexate, which is standard of care for rheumatoid arthritis. Um, with that, that's the one that can cause liver dysfunction. Again, it's the amount that you get more than one dose, although you can have an acute response. But most people, you build up over time and you have to monitor liver function tests regularly, usually every three months to make sure your liver is handling the methotrexate. Then you're given um, 
folic acid because you have to be on folic acid while you take methotrexate. And then you're given, um, if you have a side effect problem with one of those medications, you could be put on another medicine, which I was offered at one point. Um, and if those fail, um, you are given biologic medications. So use immune blockers and those medications are in, um, injectables. Uh, and that's sort of the next stage. So I was started on prednisone and methotrexate to start as well as folic acid. I was told that I needed to stop nursing my kid um, within a week. And so if anybody's ever nursed a baby, um, that may be the most tragic thing that I felt was having to give that up. So if you can imagine, and maybe this is too much detail, but I remember having these engorged breasts full of milk and the baby would cry and then I had to walk away. And so I had to walk to the other room and my husband would have to give her a formula bottle when I had to, and I had to make my milk go away. Um, and so over a week, maybe the hardest week, um, I made the milk go away, the milk, and then I started medication. So within um, a couple, you know, you, you have symptoms, like you take it once a week and I can't remember exactly, but I remember I felt better in terms of the joints pretty quickly but I think that was mostly because of the steroids. Remember the story, steroids are fairly short acting. Steroids made me not sleep well at night. They make you a little hyper. Again, there was the eating issue. But then when I started on methotrexate, I had a lot of side effects. Like um, I had a lot of nausea. Um, I lost, started losing my hair, which just fall out um, in the shower. And then um, I had sensitivity to the sun, uh, anemia, uh, these are sort of standard side effects. And I had, I remember people telling me how amazing it was that I'd lost all my baby weight. Um, it was really that I just didn't want to eat because I was nauseous all the time. So, um, yeah, it's a funny, funny time. You know, nobody, you know, talks about sort of the evil underbelly of medications and that sort of humbleness and the, how, how, fragile you feel, um, where you carry, we all carry these exterior coats of armor, uh, and that inside is sort of falling apart. And had you given any thought as to what caused all of this in the first place? Were you looking at your diet? Did you think maybe your pregnancies had triggered this? Was it genetic? Yeah. So I don't have any rheumatoid or autoimmune illness in my family. Um, but for some reason I do have some sort of genetic code that tells me that I should have rheumatoid arthritis. But why is it that a person or why did I get the RA at that time? Well, the medical thought is that the pregnancy is a hyperimmune, hyperhormonal time. And during pregnancy, actually very commonly, people post-pregnancy will develop autoimmune illness. I didn't start thinking about lifestyle for several months after I started getting better until I met some people and met a woman in particular named Karen and Karen was a nutrition consultant and she wanted to come to one of my events. Like I used to run these prevention programs even back then just to measure blood pressure and cholesterol to get people motivated to change. And she was like, well, what about a nutrition component? And I said, well, you know, I, I got that nutrition thing, you know, eat better, you know, eat less fat. And she said, well, I think there's more to it than that. And I probably was cocky and obnoxious, like, I got this. Um, and she said, why don't I do your dietary profile? You know, let me just do it for you. And so I remember being like, I don't really need any help. I'm already vegetarian. I got this. 
So, but I did it. I did this dietary profile and she came over to my house and we chat and chatted about it. And she said, you know, I think there, there's some problems in your diet. And we started talking about them. It was the first time I started thinking about how diet can impact your lifestyle. So, and how that lifestyle could then affect your ability to get illness. So I think one thing that people maybe don't understand, and maybe I did, I certainly didn't understand is that I think people have genetic predisposition to illnesses we all, we can't change our parents. You know, we're going to get the heart disease, the cholesterol, the blood pressure, um, autoimmune, celiac disease. You know, some of that stuff is predisposed because we have genetic code for it. But what turns that gene on? Like, what is the epigenetics? What surrounds that gene that makes that gene trigger? Well, what if you consider, and so most of us in science, we would say, well, the gene gets activated. It was the pregnancy that triggered it. Um, and then our job is to treat the inflammation acutely. That was the pregnisone. And then we are going to treat the illness with those disease modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. So that's the standard treatment. But what if you think about it differently and you say, okay, well, yes, I had a, I had a genetic illness that I was destined to get, or maybe not destined to get, maybe the pregnancy triggered it, but maybe it was also that I had a really bad lifestyle where I slept three or four hours a night. I was woken up all night because of the baby. I was working full time. I had three kids. I was trying to exercise. I was trying to be a super, super person. Um, and I was stressed all the time and I was falling apart. And it's that sort of milieu where your, your resources are not keeping up with the demands on your body that then also triggers inflammation. So maybe pregnancy was always going to trigger rheumatoid arthritis for me, but maybe I made it so much easier because my milieu, my all the other things I had doing to myself was making me worse. So then if you think of it that way, then there should be a way to treat that milieu. So maybe you don't activate that gene, uh, or if you do activate it, you should be able to suppress it. So that's when I started thinking a lot about those other factors. That's when I started thinking about the diet and maybe not just diet, but sleep and stress and exercise and the impact of all these things on your body and how those things can change how you do or how you respond to your genetic information. So you have the genetic code you have. You can't change that but you can change how your body responds to it. And I think that's the fundamental key that people don't get. And I certainly did not. And that even if you do get illness, there's ways to suppress it. And that is the money. So what so, were some of the things that you and this dietitian came up with as far as changing your diet? What were some of the bigger changes that were made? So her big thing for me was that I was eating too much dairy and um, I was eating a lot of um, simple sugars. Um, so I changed everything. I, I didn't just change one thing. I, I started, I went gangbusters. I, she started me off on this process of reading and understanding about dairy. She taught, I, I started looking at things which led me into the area of the gut. And then I started becoming obsessed with the gut. So I started going to conferences. I remember going to a conference at Harvard, meeting a fabulous guy named Alicio Fasano, who actually helped me write the microbiome chapter of our book on Body on Fire. Um, and he's over at Harvard right now. And I went and spent, he's just an incredible person. And I remember trying to understand the mechanism 
for why all these things then affect your cause inflammation. And so much of that is there's multiple issues. There's sympathetic tone or an imbalance between high levels of sympathetic uh, overdrive versus parasympathetic, which is your rest and recovery. So there's that stress response. But then there's also at the level of the gut, there's the microbiome. So the gut bugs that you have change depending on what you eat and how you sleep and how you how your day to day is. And then you have not only do you have those gut bugs that change and there there's also the way the gut bug or the how the intestinal cells, they stick together. And if they break apart, you can get something called a leaky gut. So there's so many different levels where your things that are happening and that you're doing in your lifestyle are affecting sympathetic and parasympathetic tone, like stress. Then there's also the gut biome, the actual bugs that are changing based on what you're doing. And then the actual concept of the leaky gut. So that's three levels of where you could be damaging or impacting your um, response to illness. And so you're, I mean, you essentially, it sounds to me based off of what you're describing is you're kind of going through medical school again. I mean, you are acquiring a ton of knowledge at this point and it had to have been exciting for you to not only be acquiring this knowledge, but I'm assuming throughout this process, your own health is improving. Yeah. I mean, that was sort of the coolest part. And that's, you know, why I always, so yes. So it was the first time I felt like I was totally in control of my learning. Like it's not that medical school wasn't my choice. It was, but you have to like do what everything you do is sort of required and you just got to go through it. But this time it was really personal, right? I needed to figure out how to heal myself. So I was going to these conferences and trying to read everything I could it's not taught in medical school. Nutrition isn't taught in medical school. Lifestyle is not taught in medical school. And so that's the funny thing, right? And so, you know, we actually studied this and like nine, over 90% of cardiologists will tell you that they had no nutrition ed education in all of their training. Um, and, it, you know, cardiologists, like we should be good at nutrition, but we aren't because we're not taught it. So yeah, I went through everything again, but in a way I was, it was a joy because I was able to read about it, think about it, meet people that were doing sort of cutting edge stuff and then try to implement it in my own life. And then I would test my labs and see what would happen. So I did, I started changing everything. I, um, started, um, cutting out, I cut out dairy first. That was the hardest thing for me because I loved, as you could tell, I was eating cheese like crazy. Um, but I always tell people because people say, Oh, that was, that'll be really hard for me too. I always tell people, you know what? Yeah. Change is hard. Change is really hard, but you know what? Feeling better is worth every single moment of change of that change because it was, it was absolutely worth it. And so I started cutting out dairy. I started eating whole grains. Um, I started cutting out sugar sweetened foods. Uh, I started eating everything fresh and I ate loads and loads of fiber. I remember being like, what is happening to my gut? Dear God. But I, <laughs> I ate so much fiber and anybody who starts this process, I tell them now, like, be prepared. The first couple of weeks is going to be, you're not going to like me because you're going to, you're going to be so gassy and so bloated that you're going to wonder like, what is going on? But it's absolutely, I said, just stay with me. 
because after a couple of weeks, it's going to be amazing. And so, you know, I would, I would try those things and, you know, and I started sleeping. I just started sleeping more. I started allowing, and that's a key thing for a woman, especially a controlling woman like myself. I started allowing my husband to take over more responsibility for the baby, which was something I had a lot of trouble doing actually, and saying that it was okay. I forgave myself for not being able to do everything. And so that allowed me amazingly, just that forgiveness allowed me to sort of let go of so many things where I said, okay, it's okay if I don't exercise every day. Ironically, I'm a huge proponent of exercise, but I was exercising in a negative way when I was overtired, didn't have enough resources, and that exercise was hurting me. So I needed to allow myself to recover. I started sleeping. I started doing yoga. I started, you know, I just I cut down my stress. And most importantly, I forgave myself for what I could not do. And then I got better. I got, I got so much better. And that just really fed the process of learning and healing uh, and wanting to make changes. Let's talk about that healing process, because I know um, that eventually you were able to come off of those medications that you were talking about, um, that, that you were not necessarily thrilled with those side effects. So how long was it after changing your diet and really becoming focused on that, that you were able to come off of those meds? And what was that process like? You know, I always worry that people hear this and they're like, I'm going to stop taking these right away, you know, just cold tofu, uh, as the vegans like to say. So what was that process like for you? How quickly did you start to feel better? So I started feeling better within weeks uh, of changing my diet, but uh, I was also taking medication. So the scientist in me was not sure that it was the diet or the, medi um, the medication just working. So I wasn't sure for some time. Uh, months would go by and I was really starting to have fewer and fewer side effects uh, and just feeling like myself again and just, uh, you know, just trim and strong and healthy. And that hadn't happened during all the time that I was taking the uh, that I was taking the drugs. I just I hadn't really felt clean and healthy until sort of getting my lifestyle improved. And then uh, I went back to the rheumatologist and I said, look, you know, I'm doing all these things and I really feel I'm better. My inflammatory markers are incredibly better. Let's start weaning the drugs. And he said, no, he said, it's a, you can't do that. Uh, it doesn't work uh, that way. You will be on medications for life. You cannot come off these meds. Um, and I went home disheartened um, and I continued to take the meds, continued to work on my lifestyle, continued to learn and read. Uh, and then I switched rheumatologists. <laughs> <laughs> and and this was the same rheumatologist who, who told you, like, get used to this. This is the way life is going to be when you first uh, went there and, and were diagnosed, correct? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Um, was, was that nerve wracking for you, though? I mean, I know that you had made all of these lifestyle improvements. You said you were feeling better at that point. But still, I mean, coming off of those medications, even though you really wanted to give it a try, it must have been a little bit nerve wracking for you. A little bit. It was a huge amount of nerve wracking. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I was totally freaked out um, and scared because, you know, you don't want to, I was finally in a place where I felt like maybe I'm good. Maybe I, I need to listen to the smarter people in the room who are not, not me. I'm not a rheumatologist. Um, I should listen to these people. 
And so I absolutely, cause I get this, I get an email or two a day sometimes asking me how I came off my medications. And I would say that I did not do it lightly. I did not just come off cold told tofu. I did not do that. I, I did it slowly, judiciously. I looked at my labs, I checked everything and I did it under the care of a rheumatologist. And so I don't recommend cold turkey tofu. I don't recommend that. I recommend you do it sort of judiciously and it takes time. And some people's gut and they've been sick for so long, it takes longer to recover. And that should not be considered a failure just because I was able to come off medications and somebody else isn't. It's not a failure of lifestyle. It just means that sometimes somebody, some people need a little bit more, their bodies have been sicker for longer and it takes longer to turn and not everybody can suppress all the inflammation because sometimes we don't know what all the inflammatory triggers are um, and not everybody's going to have the same results, but so many people will get better and that's what you hang on to. And so I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I do think, uh, I do get so many emails asking me that question, like ah, you've given me hope and I love that. I want to give everyone hope that you can get better because you can but will you come off in five days? Well, it took me a year. It took me over a year to wean my medications. So once I met the new rheumatologist, uh, we talked about it and he was just sort of more in line with my mentality. And we talked a lot about lifestyle. He said, you know, the truth is, I don't know the answer to a lot of these things that you're bringing up, which is okay. Not every physician, most physicians will know nothing about nutrition and lifestyle, but somebody, but he said, I I'm willing to try and work with you because I do think that there's something to what's happening to you. And we always have the ability to go back. You just have to be aware that if we wean, sometimes if it flares, that you have to be on more medication than when you started. And so you're hearing all these things and you're scared and you're thinking like, what the hell am I doing? What the heck am I doing here? And, um, am I really going to be this crazy? Am I really going to take this leap of faith? So it took me a long time emotionally to prepare to do this. And I remember the, when I did it, I did it two weeks before my first triathlon. Uh, I stopped taking my meds. Um, <laughs> Hold on. Talk to me about the timing of that because, oh my God, that just seems like ultra nerve wracking. You've got this huge thing coming up and now you're going to make this huge decision as far as, as your treatment. Oh my goodness. I know. So crazy. Right. So, well, so what happened was, is that I started working with a rheumatologist. And so he suggested, the new rheumatologist suggested that I cut my medication one tablet per week. Uh, no, I'm sorry. One tablet per three months. So you're taking like 30 milligrams, which is like five or six tablets. I can't remember. And then uh, per week and you take them once a week. And I remember that every three months he said I could decrease by one tablet. And then I would check my labs concurrently. Like, so it was very slow, very judicious and very analytical. And so as we made the changes, we would wait, we would watch, we would think, kind of reassess. Um, I maybe have gone a little faster than he wanted me to, but uh, it definitely still took about a year. And then I was due to come off my last medication, my last pill around the time of my triathlon. So I said, you know what, I'm just going to do it a couple of weeks before and then just be light and free. And I remember I did that triathlon and I don't know if you've ever seen, I should send a picture to you of me coming out of the water, that triathlon, because first of all, it was my first triathlon. Secondly, I suck as a swimmer and I get the training as in my swimming. Cause I just was a terrible swimmer. 
And I came out of the water and I remember there was no greater pride than I felt at that moment because I had three children that were so still, so little. I was, I had recovered. I had made these babies that I didn't, you know, I was so, wasn't sure I was going to be able to even have a kid. And I had these three amazing kids cheering for me with my fabulous husband. And then I, uh, had just come off my medications and I was able to overcome a swim and I suck at swimming. And I remember coming out of that, that water being like, okay, I, I did it. I did it. I remember that there was no greater pride, I think, than that moment when I came out of that water. Even my son to this day remembers that moment. He goes, mommy, I remember you coming out of the water and I remember that smile. But there I am. Uh, yeah. What a, I mean, geez, Louise, I, what an emotional day. I mean, that sense of accomplishment and not only being your first triathlon, but at that point, I mean, you might as well have just climbed Mount Everest. I mean, just an, an incredible, incredible turnaround. Um, and I, I personally am really proud of you. I mean, for Thank making you. those changes and investigating everything and, and coming to this solution and, and research and now paying it forward. Um, I, I want to touch on a couple of other things as, as we wrap up here. Um, you mentioned your kids and initially you thought maybe the pregnancy did play a role in this. And I know one of the emotions that you struggled with initially uh, with your diagnosis was maybe a little bit of resentment to your, your youngest because it was after her birth that you started to develop all of these symptoms that is is really difficult. Do you feel like you maybe harbored a little bit of resentment toward her because maybe you weren't ready yet to think that it was something that you were doing to yourself at that point? Or, I mean, just, just talk to me about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I would say that these were not my finest moments. Um, and um, after baby number three, I looked at my husband and when I started getting sick, I remember asking him, I was like, what did we do here? Like, what were we thinking having a third kid as it is? You, you know, you knew people had already said, why are you having three kids when you're having your, when you're pregnant? This is, you know, you already have a boy and a girl. You hear so much of that. And when you, when I remember thinking and saying to my husband, what, what were you thinking? Like, why did we do this? It's, you know, and because I was in such a dark place, remember I was blaming clothes companies for my ability not to snap and changing my shoes. I blamed her. I, I blamed my poor little baby girl uh, for being the reason for why I got sick. Uh, and it's one of my darkest and most embarrassing moments um, um, where I, I, I did, I harbored resentment that she was to blame, not me, clearly not me, but it was because I had had her that I had gotten sick. And so, you know, when I got better and started healing that, that's why I wrote the book, isn't it? You know, I, I, I write that chapter, chapter two of the book because to, because I, and I tell her, cause she's read that chapter and she cries. She goes, mama, I made you sick. And I said, baby, you know, you didn't make me sick. It, you were actually the reason I got better because it was only because of her that I learned how to heal. And um, so I always tell her, she's the one who saved me. Yeah. Uh, wow. I, that is a heck of a, a heck of a way to, to definitely look at that. And, uh, I, I personally would not beat yourself up. I don't want to editorialize here, but I, I think that the emotions you are feeling, you're just human at that point. And so every emotion possible is going to be on the table, you know? So I, I think that when somebody's going through such trauma, 
and they're so hurt and they're so confused and they're so much just trying to figure everything out. Like emotions are going to be what emotions are going to be, but at no point did you love your child any less, you know? Yes. No, I appreciate you saying that. I, I definitely, you know, have had to go through that process and, and also with my kid, because now she's old enough to understand and see the story and how it's played out. And so it's a process that we've had to go through together to kind of talk about, because yeah, no, I know that emotions and I appreciate you saying that because but I definitely will always carry a little bit of sadness that I had so much anger. There will always be a little that I do forgive myself for it. And she forgives me for it. And I do truly believe that it's because of her that I'm better because I know that I would never be on this path. I mean, it's changed my whole life. I mean, I'm, I practice preventive cardiology and plant-based nutrition, and I teach people about meditation in my clinic, and I, I do breathing exercises with them. And I'm probably the only cardiologist in the country that teaches people how to breathe and meditate. You know, it's so crazy. And so, but it's so fabulous. And it's because of her that I can... Uh, it's and I truly thank her for that every day. Yeah, She's truly a yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, everything happens for a reason. You know, that's that's cliche to say, but it is true. Um, let's end on a super positive note. Well, an inquisitive one anyway. And I think that I can't let you escape this interview without asking, what is it that Dr. Monica Agarwal eats in a day now? If somebody has been listening to this interview, has become inspired by your story and wants to begin making dietary changes themselves, what is it that you're eating? What are some of the top foods you would recommend? Okay. So positive note. So I love to eat and I love to eat. Um, um, I love to get fresh foods and I love to grow a lot of food. So we grow a lot of our vegetables. I have the benefit of living in Florida. And so I grow a load of our greens in our yard. And my husband is, uh, is not to be ignored because he does a lot of the growing. Um, so for breakfast, I often, so people, you know, I outline in my clinic when people come in, they'll say, Oh, I eat really well. I'm like, okay, what's for breakfast? What's for lunch? I go through every single food item that they eat. I Google the items that they tell me they eat that I've never heard of. So I can look at, look at the the nutritional content. So I like everything on the table. So those are the things that I go through because I think there's so much to be found in what people are eating. So what do I eat? So I eat for breakfast, I often will eat um, uh, whole, 100% whole wheat bread, uh, two pieces. Um, usually the, the only place I order bread from, because I think most bread is junk, um, it, they make their bread with no oil, no sugar, and no preservatives. So it's, and it's 100% whole wheat. Um, so I eat whole wheat bread and I usually put um, hummus and um, alfalfa sprouts. That's my um, breakfast these days. Sometimes I'll put avocado. Um, sometimes I will do hummus and tomato and black pepper. Those are, that's usually my breakfast with um, blueberries, a cup of tea with turmeric, usually green tea and turmeric. And um, sometimes, yeah, usually that's what I eat. And then a couple hours later, I usually have a handful of cashews because I'm addicted to raw cashews. Uh, they're loaded in magnesium. Uh, often I'll use walnuts because they have a lot of omega-3 fatty acids, which are anti-inflammatory. Um, I told you in my tea, I have turmeric because that's a very anti-inflammatory spice. Um, for lunch, I um, usually have um, two or three glasses of water, maybe a carbonated water if I'm feeling like I need some fizz, and I have a massive salad. Usually the salad is bigger than my head. It is so massive. 
Um, and I eat, um, usually I'm growing a load of kale. So I always eat kale. I chop it up really finely. I often put a tablespoon or two of hummus. I use balsamic vinegar, not vinaigrette, vinegar. Um, I eat every vegetable that's rotting in my fridge. My husband tells me it's the trash can salad because <laughs> whatever's rotting, I throw into there. I'm like, oh, that's good enough. I often put kimchi in it, um, or sauerkraut, but I, I prefer kimchi because it has a little bit of a bite. Um, what else do I put in? I put nutritional yeast in it for my B12. I often put tofu in it. I often put chickpeas in it. Not all of it all at once necessarily, but different varieties of those concoctions all the time. And then that salad I usually eat at one o'clock and then I usually can't finish it. So I eat the rest of it at three o'clock. Um, and I usually have an orange, um, somewhere along the way, cause I have the benefit of living in Florida and I love citrus. And, um, usually that's it. I don't often have dinner. I don't find that I need dinner. Um, I'm at a point where I find that I have such nourishing breakfast snacks and lunch that usually around three or four o'clock I'm done for the day. I know that that seems strange to a lot of people and I'm not sort of necessarily advocating that for everyone, but for me, I find that I often don't need dinner. Um, and then I'm usually good until the morning the next day. And so I find that that those are the foods I eat. Um, I have a vitamin D supplement, um, and, uh, other than that, I don't take any other supplements. Can I just Can tell I just you that that salad sounds amazing? I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I throw a lot of stuff in mine too. I call it the kitchen sink. I mean, what you have are two kitchen sinks in your salad. That is just incredible. It, it is an incredible salad. My husband looks at it like, are you going to really eat that? And I'm like, yes, I'm going to really eat that. And I'm going to eat because he just thinks it's so much food. How am I going to eat it? But I eat it at 12. I eat it again at two or three. Like I just eat it a couple, you know, I eat the whole thing. It takes time and uh, there's a lot of roughage. <laughs> yeah. But you, man, but you get down that, that is phenomenal. See, I wanted to end on a high note and dag on it. That salad is definitely a high note. I love that so much. Yes. I'm glad. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm so glad that you were able to join us for gosh, I mean, close to an hour at this point. Um, just truly a remarkable story. And I can't again, begin to express how happy I am for you and proud I am of you. Um, and, and just for your patience, I mean, everything that you have been through now is making you a better doctor today. And so I think that your patients are also reaping the benefit of everything that you went through. So it did serve a purpose. And I'm so glad that you were able to share that story with us today. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate hearing that. It, it means a lot. You can find a link to Dr. Agarwal's book, Body on Fire, in the episode notes. Get used to the pain and the quality of life. That was what her doctor told her. But oh no no, that status quo would not do for her. And that is why Dr. Agarwal is such an inspiration. And what I love about her is that she turned this big old bag of lemons, not just into lemonade, but into a healthier future full of hope for thousands of others who are suffering from this debilitating disease. And her story is also another reminder that genes do not have to be your destiny. 
Even if a disease runs in your family, there are things that you can do. There are steps that you can take to significantly reduce the risk that you will follow in your family's footsteps. You can be the one to show that there is a healthier way. And while today was about rheumatoid arthritis, the same principle applies for heart disease and diabetes and cancer and Alzheimer's and so many of these conditions that we're learning more and more are connected strongly to the food that you eat and the lifestyle that you lead. So if we make changes in those departments, oh, what a difference that can make in our health. Really quickly, I want to tell you about a neat opportunity for you to continue to learn and become inspired. I would love it if you could join us July 15th through the 17th at the International Conference on Nutrition in Medicine. There you will find 20 of the leading voices in the medical field who will be presenting new science and new data on health and diet. And one of the presenters this year is even giving a talk on the health benefits of having an animal companion, the health benefits of having a dog. And the cool thing, because the conference is online again this year, your four-legged friend can join us as well. Why not? Right now, there are early registration savings available for ICNM. Massive savings, but you have to act fast. Prices go up after March 1st. So for just $299 and $175 for students, you can join us for all three days of the conference. Register right now at pcrm.org ICNM or click on the link right now in the episode notes. And also, if you could take a moment, if you haven't already subscribed to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcast and wherever you get your favorite shows from, please go ahead and do that and leave a five-star rating as well, because every new subscription and five-star rating helps those who need this potentially life-saving information find it. So let's help them out with the new subscription, if you would be so kind. And for today, that's going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Monica Agarwal for joining us and sharing that incredible story with us. Just amazing. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. <laughs>